This is an ABC podcast. You're seeing lettuce swapped out for cabbage at your local burger joint. You play a game of, I don't know, fruit and veg roulette when you go to the supermarket because at the moment it's hard to predict what's going to be on the shelves. Is milk next? Maybe they can't be as demanding to the agricultural world as they have been in the last 30 to 40 years because no longer is the farmer the one that's forced to take it. Hey, I'm Kaya Hanley, and while the sun is finally shining around the Hunter today, for this episode of the Newcastle Hunter Catch-Up, you're going to need your gumboots. Let's talk about milk. It's a hot topic at the moment. The big supermarkets are upping their prices. You can expect to pay three to five bucks for milk very soon. And you might straight away think about what that means for your food budget. And look, it's fair. But the Hunter is a proud dairy region. And since the days of a litre of milk for a dollar, it's been a hard slog to make ends meet. And it's stressing our dairy industry out caused me to lose a lot of sleep because the last thing I want to do is, is have to lift prices to the point where it's going to affect our sales. Mm. But the other thing we can't do is, is pay less than the big guys to our farmer as well. That's something that we've set up from day dot that, you know, when, we're never going to be that type of company. So we've lifted our, our, our prices along the way as we've sort of had to. That's Hunter Bell Dairy co-owner Jason Chesworth. They say the struggle is real to find that balance, the balance between supporting their local dairy farmer, pricing their cheese in a way that you'll actually want to buy it, but also being a major employer in the region, they don't want to have to fire people. We can't just go and get our milk from anywhere. You know, mm. our, our milk comes from one farm at Singleton there, one breed of, of those beautiful brown Swiss cows. And that differentiation makes it very easy for us to, to, to value the milk at a, at a higher price. It's less processed. It's done by hand. It's from a single um, source. They're, they're all things that people think are really important. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's trying to find that balance between making sure you've got your farmer getting paid right, that we're making enough money to employ people and we're not going to go out of business as well. So let's head to a dairy farm in Vasey, a very wet, soggy dairy farm at the moment. Dairy farmer Captain Cow, aka Dave Williams, says they're only just making ends meet. We just have to have a price rise, otherwise we'd be going broke. Mm. Oh, there's one of the cows just having a say as well. Yeah, one of the little cows. <laughs> what goes into making a litre of milk for you? Talk us through it. Uh, well, it's a lot. It's the, it's the growing of the feed. It's the feeding. It's the milking the cows. Um, it's the cost of machinery. It's Yeah, it's a huge um, a huge impost. Cost of everything's gone up. Like Fertiliser's gone up. Water's gone up. Electricity's gone up. Uh, cost of feed's gone up. It's just, um, it's just never ending thing. Dave doesn't even mention the 3am alarms, working until the sun goes down, the physically demanding job that it is to be a farmer, dealing with drought, with this season's rain, flood. For a family farm, it's really hard going. We're hanging at the moment and hopefully this price rise will keep us going. But yeah, like I'm not sure what the future is going to hold because... Um yeah, like, like there's never enough money in it. Like it's you only just make enough every month. Um, yeah, and and the co- and the way the cost of machinery and that the way it's going, it's it's just um, for a small family farm, it's getting harder and harder. And you might relate to a part of that, as Dave said. You know, it, it's a month to month thing. Living, everyone is feeling the pinch. You try really hard to support local, but money is tight. I get it. 
I do. I know. But sometimes it's about zooming out. Sometimes it's about looking at something with a different perspective. And that's how Jason is looking at things. Like mm. here we are talking about something where a three-litre bottle is still worth less than a cup of coffee. Yeah. So you can go in and buy the home brand milk, three three-litre bottle for $4.50 now, and you'll struggle to get a coffee for that. Now, generally speaking, there's only 150 to 200 mils of milk in a coffee. So that, that, that metaphor has been keeping me going because <laughs> I love my coffee and I certainly haven't slowed down buying coffee since the, the price of it's gone up. And I'm happily forking over my 5 to to $6 that used to be 4 to 5 you know, years ago. Um, now I'm just probably more particular about where I'm giving that money to and, and making sure that I'm spending money with, you know, small family-owned businesses um, rather than those larger corporates. Our generation has missed out on something pretty special and it's something the generation before probably took for granted. That sound, the smell, the touch of the everyday typewriter, while completely obsolete now, the typewriter is still a much-loved instrument. If you don't know, Tom Hanks, yep, that bloke from the latest Elvis film, is one of the world's biggest collectors of typewriters. But the next biggest fan, they call the Hunter home. So I was a musician and uh, had songwriter's block and thought, I'm just going to try an old school typewriter. I've, I've never used one before. Uh, and I went and found one on Gumtree for 50 bucks, went and picked it up, and uh, I instantly fell in love. I guess you could say I got bit by the bug. So I thought I'd be writing songs on it, but pretty quickly I started writing poetry, short stories, uh, and, and novels, letters to people, letters to myself, journaling. Uh, so pretty quickly I realised this is something I love, and I was using it, yeah, almost every day. Aniron Drury loves, 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 loves typewriters. So much so, he has his collection on display now at the Musselbrook Library. But how did he get so many typewriters? So the next week, uh, I happened to be flying to the US, and when I was over there, I thought, I'm going to buy another one of these. Uh, much to my wife's disdain, because she was so surprised, why do you need more than one? And I you know, didn't really stop to ask myself the same question. I just bought another one. Instantly fell in love with comparing the machines. They're so different and unique when you put them side by side. So I thought, I'm going to buy another one. And I bought a third, and it was broken. So I instantly discovered the love of repairing these machines. Uh, and after that, of course, uh, I was hooked. So bought more and more, and soon I had 7 and 14 and 21, and now I have about 130 machines in my collection. And the passion continues to grow and be shared as well. And millions of typewriters were made right across the world for every environment. People a bit older than you remember music and muscle memory and specific touch typing courses. Although, to be fair and honest, and a wee bit brutal to history, it was usually one of the genders doing the hard work in school with these contraptions. I'll let you fill in the blanks. So if the world needed so many typewriters... Where did they come from? I wish that Australia made their own machines. We came close, but never actually made them here on our shores. But America, for the most part, made most of these typewriters. Some are from Europe. We've got uh, Italian typewriters, Swiss and uh, Swedish typewriters. And we've got some English ones as well, the Imperials. But the Royals, the Remingtons, the things that most people are familiar with, good old US of A. Do you have a favourite? 
Oh, that's like asking me which one of my children is my favorite. <laughs> um, you know, I have to say the very first one I bought, um, it's, it's nostalgia now to me. It's, it's special. There's something in it. Um, and whilst I have so many others that I absolutely love, um, and it would be very hard if you said pick 20, oh, I'd cry over it, you know. <laughs> but that first one will always be special. I am on the lookout for my very first typewriter. I know what I want, but I can't put it into words because I have a love of the olds. I have a love of the 50s and 60s. So typewriters fall so perfectly into that, but it's got to look a certain way. The keys have to feel a certain way. And I just haven't quite found it yet. That passion that I feel as I search op shops high and low, as I go into every antique shop that I ever pass looking for the perfect typewriter. And Iron feels the same. You know, I've shared my love of typewriters with so many people, with, with students that when I've worked through schools and with, with young people, people with learning difficulties. And uh, they all seem to be drawn to it in the same way that I was. There's something powerful about taking your thoughts and immediately transferring them to ink on a page in a, in a, in a typed out way. Uh, it's so permanent, but the machine itself is so tactile. It's like an extension of yourself. And when you put all that together, it just it's, it's magic. My next question, though, is can you still buy Whiteout? <laughs> if you'd like to see where an iron's love of typewriters has taken hold, the display is on now at the Musselbrook Library. What a week. That's the Newcastle Hunter catch-up. If you want to connect with more news from The Hunter, subscribe to the ABC Newcastle newsletter. Sadly, not typed on a Remington, but a beautiful read for your weekend nonetheless. We'll be back Monday. Have a great weekend.